I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. Welcome to Season 8 of GDP, the Global Development Primer Podcast. We're very excited to offer you a wide range of very interesting guests in this season, including guests from uh, that are participating in the Democracy Dialogue series from the Parliamentary Centre in Ottawa. So stay tuned for a great lineup of guests coming your way over the fall of 2021. And today, to kick off Season 8, we're very happy to have a very special guest, a very good friend, Chef Ben Kelly, join us today. Ben Kelly is a Red Seal chef, blogger, and cookbook author from Nova Scotia, Canada. For over 20 years, he has worked in a wide variety of restaurants from Canada's east coast to its far north. Ben's love of food first developed when cooking corn chowder and shepherd's pie alongside his mother as a young child. And that love grew as Ben was guided through his culinary journey by numerous chefs and teachers. Ben's passion now extends to teaching anyone who wants to learn about food how to cook. Now today, Ben owns and operates a personal chef service and catering company, as well as a successful food blog called ChefNotes.com. You can find him on social media at Chef Ben Kelly, and you can find his books, The Five Ingredient Cookbook for Men, and The How To Cookbook for Men, wherever fine books are sold. Chef Ben, welcome to GDP. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. Well, it's a pleasure. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we're able to to catch up and, and bring you on uh, GDP, and especially for the topic that we've got lined up today, which is how have people eaten during the pandemic? And uh, I couldn't think of a better guest to talk to us with a extensive knowledge of culinary skills today, uh, knowledge about the restaurant industry today, and also from your food blog, you've done quite a bit of work about the history of food as well. That's true, yeah, I have. <laughs> Yeah, um, you're a busy guy, Ben. You're a busy guy, Ben Kelly, and I'm I'm glad that uh, that we got you here. Now, the pandemic. We are currently in a phase where there's lots of vaccines rolling out in some parts of the world, barely any vaccines rolling out in most of the world. There's reopening. There's discussion about people's lives returning to some form of normalcy. Uh, you know, are people going to be in bars watching the the Olympics uh, and the the, the following uh, news from the Olympics, or is this is it still going to be an era where we're a little bit distant, where things have changed, where restaurant patterns have changed? Uh, that's something to to think about. But I'm really curious, Ben, that about how people have eaten during the pandemic. Uh, you know, is there anything that comes to your mind? And I'm thinking back as well from historical pandemics, that foods have been a part of pandemics. People have changed their diets. They've they've gone after certain things. And in some cases, certain foods were believed to help people stay healthy during pandemics. I'm thinking back to the, the 1918 flu, uh, where oysters suddenly became the big craze, where people believed that shucking raw oysters was a way to, to keep the influenza pandemic from that time at bay. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, in the past, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, misunderstandings about food and how they relate to pandemics, which, I mean, to be fair, there's been a lot of 
misinformation about our pandemic as well. So it, it could be understood why there would be so much information way back then. Um, but I mean, there's a, there's a lot to it, right? Like when you're in a position like we are now or like they were then or through any number of pandemics throughout history, you just want an answer. You just want something that's going to help you. And so food is one of the, is the main input into our bodies. So you, it makes sense that you would turn to that as the, as the option, you know? And I think in our pandemic, we definitely saw that where people went more towards healthy eating than they may have in the past, even though like the majority of us gained weight during the pandemic more, it's because we were eating more, not necessarily because we were eating worse. And so I think a lot of people similar to, to past pandemics went more in the direction of, of, thinking about what they're inputting into the body more and focusing on more healthy foods. Maybe not so much oysters, but definitely, definitely other healthy foods. A lot of fermented foods I've noticed actually. Well, that, well, that was it. I mean, uh, you know, oysters were, were again, popular in the, 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 the early 20th century influenza. Uh, we could take it back to the times of ancient Greece where there was sort of the four spheres of health that people thought about and, and, uh, in times of disease that more simple and pure foods were, were sought after and the, the spices and the luxurious ones were sort of toned down, but you're right. Fermented. Uh, did, did we not have a sourdough phase, uh, that happened that led to some sort of a flour crisis in many, in many grocery stores? Yeah. I mean the sourdough craze and just bread in general. Um, I mean, there were flour and yeast shortages all over the place. And I mean, whenever, like, whenever there's a giant jump on, on an ingredient like that, like, I mean, we saw our, our whole supply chain kind of collapse. Um, but I mean, the fermented food thing, and a, a lot of, even, interestingly enough, back in the 1918 pandemic, uh, Fanny Farmer, who's a famous cookbook author and uh, culinary instructor, she recommended people eat fermented foods like kefir and other fermented dairy foods because the dairy was easier to digest and the assumption was that the kind of bacteria used in the fermentation process would kind of help you fight off the influenza. I don't necessarily think that people were thinking that as much today, but um, I think the sourdough thing kind of came about because people had so much time on their hands and sourdough is something that takes a long time to make. You need to really pay attention mm. to it. Um, so I think the fermentation of the yeast and the dough and, and everything uh, really kind of more than for health purposes was just more of a entertainment and uh, time occupation than anything else. But, th but that's an interesting point, man, because here, you know, we, uh, you know, people were, were, you know, just a few steps away from selling sourdough starters on black markets. I mean, it, it was definitely popular, but globally uh, there was other sorts of comfort foods that, that people took to. Uh, there were Dan Dan noodles that became, very popular in parts of Asia. People are making their own their own dan dan noodle recipes, but as opposed to what would be traditionally something that you would just pop to the corner and and grab for a takeout. Uh, you know that's that's you know the stuff that's just soaking in chili oil, turmeric stained bowls of of uh, kichdi. Um, there's rice lentil porridges started to to come up in in, in parts of uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, you know all these comfort foods came back into to vogue during this time. And I think this is something that, you know, you as a professional chef, I'm curious about, like when, 
when there's a pandemic going on and people are taking the time to try to cook for themselves in possibly ways they never have before, are there impacts on the restaurant and service industry that may not be corrected after this pandemic? Yes. Um, but I think, yeah, yes, I, I don't think the restaurant industry is ever going to be the same. I think that initially with everything opening up, there's going to be a big push back into restaurants. But I think overall, the whole industry has changed. And and uh, I think it's probably a permanent change where people realize that cooking is actually an enjoyable process. They they rediscovered their kitchens and and, and learned that they can actually make some of the foods that they really love. And it turns out really, really good. Um, and so I think, I think we are going to see more people cooking at home, even once this is over. And I mean, that, that is counter to the trend that we saw before the pandemic, where restaurant sales have been increasing year over year for decades, as more and more people turn away from, from cooking at home. And I mean, if you look at a new, a new apartment building or anything right now, the kitchen's are almost non-existent because they assume yeah. people aren't going to cook. But I think we are going to see that trend kind of shift where people are going to eat more at home um, and they're going to spend more of their money at the grocery store rather than at the restaurant. And that, that Ben, is a good point. Like it, that's um, the, the size of living accommodations. Like uh, I remember being my, my days living in Vancouver. I went and saw a, a uh, new condo building, uh, you know, back when I thought, well, maybe I'll stick around Vancouver. And uh, the the presenter, the agent, you know, when we get to the kitchen and, you know, could barely put a toaster oven in there. And I yeah. said, what, what is this? Like, and he said, well, you know, you're not expected to host anybody and you're barely expected to cook for yourself. You're supposed to go downstairs and grab some takeout, you know, cheap sushi joints. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a lot to ride on. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's a bit of a gamble. And there's many places in the world where domestic accommodation just is not set up for self-catering. Uh, there is very, very interesting photographic expose recently about the tiny accommodations in Seoul, uh, you know, where you basically have you know, working class men that are living in you know, cramped conditions that are just barely the size of a, of a king size bed. Uh, ditto for Hong Kong, right? There's there's lots of combinations there that are just so small, and then, of course, other places where, you know, the facilities aren't there for a collection of reasons. And in those places, the service industry uh, makes up a huge portion of of economics. Uh, you know, the the Wallace in in Mumbai, the the T Wallace, the Double Wallace, who make their living providing pre cooked food and tea uh, and delivery of it. Uh, you know, how, how are restaurants going to change? Do you think going forward, if it's, if it's, if it's in North America or, or globally for that matter? Well, I think the big thing is we're just going to see less of them. Um, yeah. I think that there's just not going to be enough business to support as many restaurants. And I think the restaurants we do have, and that will continue to have are going to get smaller um, and probably provide a lot more, in terms of takeout and stuff like that. But I think we're going to see like square footage uh, of restaurants shrink quite a bit. And part of that is the eating trend, but part of that is also the owners realizing like, Oh man, if, if we have, if something like this happens again, I can't float this place. You know, when you have, you know, 
a massive restaurant, you're paying $30,000 a month in, in rent, you know, you need to cover that. And if, if all of a sudden all of your business goes away for a year and a half, you're kind of stuck holding that bill. So I think the trend is going to change because of dining styles, but it's also going to change because the industry itself has realized that this is a possibility that no one ever thought it was a possibility before, right? Where the whole world just shuts down for a year and a half. So I think, I think that's the other kind of contributing factor to what's going to happen with restaurants. And I think you'll probably see a lot more ghost kitchens, which if you're not familiar yeah. with that is it's restaurants that don't have a restaurant. It's only delivery, but it's a variety of food. So you can cook a whole bunch of styles of food in one, in one space and just have it all sent out to people's houses. I think that's going to be, uh, that was already a growing trend, but I think that is uh, a big part of the future of restaurants. People are going to eat at home a lot more, whether they're eating uh, takeout or not. I was going to ask about that, Ben, because the, uh, the the cases that came up during the pandemic, the rather innovative solutions that uh, some industries employed did exactly that. And I'm thinking about the airline industry. There was, um, I believe it was Singapore Airlines, where uh, you could, you could, you know, they were grounded for, you know, months. And so they came up with this idea that they would deliver their first class menu to uh, any apartment in, in Singapore. So if you were really needing your fix of whatever they give you in first class, I assume it's expensive, uh, you know, they'll deliver that to your door. And that was made in a kitchen in the airport, right? And the way it went. And there was even one where just the plane went up for two hours, people had a meal and then landed again. Like that's quite the carbon footprint. We can talk about that later, but the, the, yeah, the, the idea that, that food will be prepared, not in a traditional way. And is something, is there something also to be said about that, that the pandemic exposed some of the, the health risks of kitchen work? I mean, you've worked in kitchens and it's tough work, uh, wicked hours, all these things, uh, easy to, to scald yourself, give yourself a burn, quick knife cut, but the ability to to transmit viruses in close quarter kitchens is is that a factor? I think I think the virus plays less of a factor in that than you would expect. I think I think the and I mean we're seeing staffing issues in the industry all around the world, um, and I mean this this was an issue before again, but like with any issues we've had in our society in the last few years, the pandemic just kind of emphasized them and, and made them worse. And the staffing issue, I think a big part of it is, and, and it's every industry, it's not just uh, the service industry, but every industry is having kind of similar issues where people realize that, you know, they actually enjoy making bread or they enjoy making TikTok videos or they enjoy this new hobby that they discovered during the pandemic. And it's a lot better than spending 16 hours a day in a 40 degree kitchen for minimum wage. You know, and I think, I think we're going to see a complete and total shift in, in the workforce across the board because people are realizing that the, their quality of life can be a lot better than what it is. You know, if they, and they can actually enjoy what they do. Um, yeah. and so I think that's, that's more of the, the issue that the pandemic has caused in my industry and in industries across the board, where it's just the realization that maybe busting your, your back 
for 16 hours a day for minimum wage for someone else really isn't necessarily the best way to make a living. Right. And, you know, if we look stateside to the U.S., it's something that, that Bourdain um, mentioned in a couple of his books, is that a lot of kitchens, the way that they were running, were providing such nasty work conditions that they were looking for people who are almost in a position of dependency to to fill them. And uh, 100%. Something to the extent that, you know, he would rather have, uh, this is Bourdain's uh, quote, not mine, uh, but that he would rather have uh, an illegal migrant come up from El Salvador or or Honduras and you know, be paid under the table in a kitchen uh, than to find someone who's graduated from one of the culinary schools in New York or Boston. And the border's closed and the migration, you know, got a kink in it as well. And because you've got those those labor pools that were requiring or depending or, sorry, say, mandating that that vulnerable labor when that changes that industry is going to respond in some way yeah and i mean it's it's not that much different here like i mean if you look in any kitchen like you go to any restaurant in halifax you poke your head in the kitchen and you're going to see a lot of the cooks are filipino um because uh they were brought up through the temporary foreign worker program and they're cheaper they are often kind of working as indentured servants where the owner of the restaurant will also own the apartment they live in and they take a big chunk of their pay. And it's, it's a pretty kind of disgusting system, but it's, that's been the industry for a very long time because it's, if you, if, if you grew up like middle-class or even upper middle-class, unless you absolutely love cooking, you're going to realize really quickly that there's better ways to make money. So yeah. you're not going to stay in the yeah, industry. Right. And I mean, people go to culinary school and they come out thinking they're chefs and, and it's a complete disillusionment, which is another issue, which is part of what Bourdain was talking about in that quote, where, you know, if you have someone who is used to having nothing and they come into an industry, even if they're treated badly, it's better than what they had before. And, you know, that's that's a that's an issue. That's a right. serious issue. Yeah, I mean, and this is something that else we we talk about in the series about issues of migration and forced migration, and indentured labor, and these these sorts of things. And you know, I think that what if people are really paying attention to what's going on in the pandemic and shutting essentially the, this industry down or making it take a forced rethink? Um, I'm thinking back to just maybe I can share an anecdote. Uh, ben, when when we were uh, playing trivia at an establishment which will remain anonymous. Uh, you know, I was usually teaching uh, class until, you know, an hour and I would rush from the from the class down and, and meet you guys uh, for a night of trivia. And I was usually starving. So I would, you know, I'd grab a, you know, a Lamberger or something like that. And I remember a couple of times I'd order it and you, you'd be looking at it and, and you just say straight up like, man, I wouldn't eat that. I would. We can do a lot better than that. And uh, I think I got some advice from you. OK, well, how would you make a good Lamberger? And you, you kind of show me what what to do about it. And I went home and started doing it. And I was like, yeah, this is right for all the right reasons. It's, 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 you know, now you know what you're doing. You're making it well. You have knowledge about the ingredients. But there's also that behind the scenes thing, too. Like, you could just tell that when that burger came out, it was done with almost a shock of disdain. Like, it, 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 there's, there's, there's a lot of complicated economics behind it. And I think 
one thing that you're very gifted at is helping people understand not just what cooking is, not just how to cook, but what cooking is and what that relationship is between people and their plates. And you've come out with with two books during the pandemic that were, in my eyes, were primers and foundational guides on how people could really cook well, even with limited ingredients and limited time. But what are your thoughts on that and, and some of the work that you put into these books? Well, in ter- let's go back to the restaurant for a second. Um, sure. Because the the restaurant industry, there, and don't get me wrong, there are some fantastic restaurants out there. There's, there's really great restaurants. But the, the larger portion of restaurants that you see now, you see a lot of chains and a lot of local restaurants that want to become chains. That's like a really mm-hmm. common thing. And when you're a chain, you're your target market is the broadest possible market, right? Like think, think of it as pop music, right? Like there's a lot of really cool um, underground hip hop. There's a lot of really cool avant-garde artistic stuff. But if you want to make a ton of money, you focus on pop, right? And that's, that's mm-hmm. the same in the restaurant industry. Like the food is not designed necessarily to be good. It's designed to please, or rather to displease the fewest number of people. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to, you don't want your meal so, to annoy you. No, exactly. You just want to say, yeah, it was, it was fine. Like I don't mind paying the $30 for it. Like it wasn't great. I'm not going to, I'm not going to dream about it, but it, it, it was, it was fine. And I think that that has created a problem with the relationship we have with food as a society where we forget what food can mean and how good it can be. And we just assume, like, if it's okay, then that's what it's supposed to be. And I think, I hope that if any, if people take anything from the pandemic and their relationship with food, it's that they deserve better than that. Like, and that it, it should be better than that. Um, and that, that, that to me is the big problem with, with the industry and, and everything and, and the relationship that we have with food. And in terms of my books and, even my, my blog and everything, like the whole point is that I really want people to have a good relationship with food because I, I see the importance of it. And I was, I was raised cooking beside my mom, like you said in in your wonderful intro there. Um, and I, I, I have, you know, my issues with food as well. Um, but I think I have a healthier relationship with it than a lot of people. And I understand how, Food is more than just what we eat, right? Like my mom died about almost almost eight years ago now. But if I cook one of her recipes, if I'm feeling sad or alone and I cook one of her recipes and I sit there and eat it, it's like she's there giving me a big hug, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the power, the power of food. Or, you know, if if we look way back in history and we find a recipe from you know the the 14th century, we can cook that recipe as closely as we possibly can. And you're actually experiencing history in, in a way that you can't mm. with anything else. And, and so I think there's that power of food that people are hopefully building that connection back up with. And I, I really hope that that's going to change the trends um, and, and really change how we eat overall. Right. 
you know, I think that's that's a beautiful point, Ben. I mean, I think everyone can sort of figure out what what are their deep comfort foods that that relatives or parents or grandparents are giving them. I mean, my 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 granny's chicken that that's my bang, that's my go to. That is something that uh, chicken thighs can become a beautiful thing quickly. Mm-hmm. And everyone, I'm sure, has has a story about that. And when I talk to people who are you know cooking, or maybe there's a a potluck or something like that, um, and recipes sort of come out, and you're talking to people about about food, there seems to be areas where people are deeply comfortable with, and then others where it's like a no go. I won't even try to cook this. Uh, it could be something like a pie crust. It could be a soup. It could be uh, a stir fry. You know, it, who knows what it is that is outside of the repertoire of, of somebody to to engage with, and so. You know, I wonder if that people get get their, you know, little cadre of, of recipes lined up and they're comfortable there. And that's a very limited range that they go for. But having looked at both of the books that you've come up with this this past year, what I find really interesting and different from most cookbooks is that you're not positioning yourself as this person who's guarding knowledge and we have to follow you step by step and mimic you cut by cut in order to then get this knowledge. It's almost like a Masonic lodge with the, you know, the secret handshakes. You know, it seems how some culinary knowledge has been protected. This is, this is very open. You're, you're saying there's, there's a few key things to do for most recipes. And once you get the understanding of why things are done in a certain way to trigger certain flavors, here's an example but then run with it. And I think that is a very powerful approach because it, it dismantles the, the power that, you know, top chefs and elite cooking schools have had. And it gives people confidence to be creative. Well, thank you, Bob. That means a lot to me. Um, I think part of this is, you know, marketing, by the restaurant industry and you know the nouveau french chefs of the 70s where it's you know we as chefs we like to pretend that what we do is this like super complex mysterious thing and i mean there is a little bit to that like if you're going to cook at 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 a certain level yes for sure but if you want to just eat good food regularly it's not complicated it, it, it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't be and that knowledge should be available to everyone who wants it and that's that's really kind of the the purpose of everything i do online and with my books is just to help people who want it find the information to cook better and to eat better because i think like if we can demystify cooking a little bit like even take pie crust for example it seems like this really scary thing, and you always hear about how complicated it is. It's three, three, four, four ingredients. You know, you have flour, butter, salt, and water. That's it. You just mix them. You let it chill, and then you roll it out. It doesn't have to be complicated. And once you figure out these like few basic things, it kind of unlocks all this potential, right? It's like if you're learning an instrument and you learn a couple scales. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is how this all works together. 
And now that I know this, I can do all of these different things. It, it's the same with food. And I think, I, again, I hope that people are starting to, to see that cooking doesn't have to be this secretive thing that's only available to professionals. And, and that's, that's what I hope people, another thing I hope people take away from the pandemic and from my books and, and my blog and everything else. And, you know, it's something else that, you know, with, with talk, speaking in regards to the restaurant industry and the global, uh, shall we call it the industrial kitchen that exists, that's, these are great points. And there's still many, many in the world who, you know, rely on family-based, very simple, simple meals. And in that regard, and I'm thinking about, you know, migrant workers and, and uh, people in very low resource areas, there's often a wicked gender dynamic to it as well, right? Where, where women are usually the ones that said, okay, that's, that's kitchen duty and feed the family. But, you know, with, uh, with changes from this pandemic, hopefully, and this is, you know, your, your books are aimed right, right at this say, so, you know, these are, these are cookbooks for men, you know, to get yourself in the kitchen there and get, get participating in it. And, uh, you know, I hope that that message could also be, be discussed at a global level because you know in whatever context when you when you start breaking down uh, food preparation uh, culinary responsibilities duties along gender lines you, you know you get some issues arising with that so you know both your books were uh, were aimed at men and and you know was that the idea behind it to, to sort of have a poke at uh, some of the gender divide there yeah it, it was i mean like if you look at the Food Network or cooking magazines or most cookbooks, they're written or or produced with women in mind. Like if you look at the ads on the Food Network, they're not they're not really focused on men. And and you know part of that is because women are more likely to watch that or read those magazines or whatever. But they're not the only ones who do it they're not the only ones interested in food and as humans we should all be able to feed ourselves right like okay so let me let me give you an example i do uh cooking lessons as well private cooking lessons i don't do them as much as i used to but i, I still do them and i was hired to do a cooking lesson for this man who uh was recently divorced and he was in his early 40s and i showed up at his house and and he had picked the menu when we went to cook it and I was like, okay, just peel these potatoes and then we'll make some mashed potatoes. And he had to ask me how to peel a potato because he'd never peeled a potato in his life. Hmm. And that, that seems far-fetched, right? Like I would understand if, if people didn't believe me when I say that, but it's true. And it, as a food communicator, I've seen stuff like this time and time again, but it's almost always for men, whether it's because mothers or grandmothers take their daughters into the kitchen and show them a few basic things while the guys sit with their dads or don't do it or whatever. Maybe it's just an ingrained, a societally ingrained interest, whatever it is, men just are not given the same level of food education um, that the majority of women, I'm not going to say all women, because there's lots of women who, who can't cook anything either. But I think it's just men are underserved in that, in that area. And so that's why the book is the books are focused towards men because I want young men especially to understand that cooking is a fundamental human responsibility, not even right or privilege. It's a responsibility. 
like what, especially now that we have such a focus on health, what you put into your body matters. Restaurants are not trying to make healthy food. They're trying to load food up with fat, sugar, and salt because it makes you want them more. The saltier the food is, the more you're going to drink, the higher your bill is going to be. The sweeter and fattier the food is, the more you're going to crave it and you're going to go back. My job as a chef in a restaurant is not to make healthy food. It's to make delicious food. When you're at home, it shifts. You're trying to make healthy food that's also delicious. And so I think that's what the books are really focused at is showing men that it's cool to be in the kitchen. It's perfectly fine. And, and you can do it. And I, one other point I want to make is I know so many men who say they can't cook and that they don't like cooking. But then every summer, they're out on their grill almost every night making ribs or steaks or whatever, as if that's not cooking. And it's all the same thing. So right. that's right. that's why the books are focused towards men. Chef Ben Kelly, I have uh, deeply enjoyed uh, speaking to you, as I always do. And I uh, want to thank you very much for being here to kick off our opening episode for Season 8 and taking us to a really rich exploration of pandemic dining uh, you know we've had our pandemics in the past where oysters and uh, i guess lemonade was a was a feature in london at, at one point during the uh, bubonic plague it's you know the, at that time but beyond uh, just the sourdough craze that we've seen with covid19 and the dan dan noodle craze as well there's a really important discussion to talk about food equity gender balancing and even economics of the global food system. So thank you very much, Ben, for being part of that conversation. Thank you for having me, Bob. I really enjoyed it.